Um, but we, we have been looking at Hebrews 13, so if you want to turn your Bibles there. Uh, Hebrews 13, the past week, few weeks we've been on the topic of Christian ethics. What are the essential ethics of practical Christian living? That's what uh, the author is seeking to answer here. And if you remember, ethics means moral code. We, we have a moral code, a standard by which we operate. We get our standards of conduct from the Bible. And um, the first week at the beginning of Hebrews 13, we looked at how um, Christian behavior, our Christian behavior should be in relation to other people. Um, and if you could boil it down to one overarching principle, one, one word that would sum up how we should treat others, what would that word be? Love. Yeah? We're to love. And so in verses 1 to 3, we saw that we are to have a continual love for who? The brothers and sisters in Christ, right? The fellowship, the church. We're also to have a congenial love for strangers. We're to be hospitable. And we're also to have a compassionate love for those that are hurting, to meet the needs of those people. And that's really all the author discussed in terms of our contact in relation to other people, because that's the sum of it. Love. Jesus said to his disciples um, that all men will know that we're his disciples if we, if we love one another. But the second thing we looked at was the Christian conduct in relation to ourselves. How do we conduct ourselves? And uh, here he chose two areas, you might remember, uh, to look at. And we took two weeks to look at those two areas. And those two uh, matters that he discussed were the matters of sex and money. Yep, the Bible talks about those things. Um, and the reason is because there's such huge issues for our world today. We've got it all wrong. We've got it all upside down and backwards. And the point that he made was that the only place for sex is in marriage, and that's where it is undefiled. That's where it's pure, and that's why marriage is a precious thing, and we're to protect it and honor it. We also looked at the idea of money and possessions and how we're to conduct ourselves with those things. We're to be free from the love of those things. We're to be free from the fear of losing those things. And we're to be full of contentment with what God has graciously already provided for us. It all belongs to him to begin with. So thus, the Christian conduct that we've been focusing on, verses 1 to 6, and Christian conduct is still in focus here, but it's a slightly different view here. We're looking at now the Christian conduct relating to our religious practice, our religious practice. Again, kind of boiling it down to what are the few things that we should focus on as a church? And so I'm going to read the passage today, and we're looking at verses 7 to 17, so we're looking at a, a decent chunk here today. Look at verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, that the heart, um, sorry, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. 
Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today. And Lord, we are looking at a lot of your word. And there's actually some really deep uh, things here and some difficult to understand things, Lord. And so we just pray that um, your spirit would guide us into your truth, Lord. We need uh, the illumination of your spirit. So reveal it to us today. We pray that you would speak to our hearts, open up our hearts for what you would have us learn today, that we may apply it to our lives and live lives that glorify you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, admittedly, as we read through that, there's some uh, interesting things. There's some difficult uh, things. Um, and I'm just going to jump into it because there's a lot to cover here. You just look at verse 7, and uh, we'll look at that again. That'll give us a better idea as to the author's point. Verse 7, remember those who rule over you, who've spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Now here we're told to remember those who rule over you. And we need to look at this word rule because it's going to be used several times in the next few verses. This rule, word rule is hegeomai, and it means to lead or rule or command or have authority over. It's used in all these various contexts throughout the New Testament. And we're going to see it in verses 17 and 24. Um, it's used in reference to the Davidic king that would be uh, not the least among the rulers of Judah. It's used in reference to Joseph being a leader of Egypt. And it's used of a couple of the disciples, Judas, Persabbas, and Silas. They were leaders. We read about them in Acts 15. And it's also used of a leader in general. And so here, the reference is, is it to a ruler or is it to a leader? Well, look what it says those who have spoken the word of God to you. So this is clearly a reference then to past spiritual leaders. We're to remember them. And so the first point here is to remember the faith of your leaders. We're to call to mind. We're to um, hold in memory those leaders who spoke the word of God to us. And I took some time to think back on my life and to contemplate those who introduced me to the faith, those who spoke the word of God to me. And I can think of three key figures in my past. You should all do this for yourselves. The first was my father, who became a believer after he was married and raised me in a Christian home. He took me to church, taught me the word of God at home. I went to a Christian school where he actually taught as a Christian teacher. We read the Bible together as a family. We prayed together as a family. And so it begins for me with my father. Later, as I became a teen, it, it goes to my youth pastor. I had a really uh, vibrant and active and funny youth pastor who taught me the word of God, even though I failed to really comprehend it or to follow it. But he was faithful still to guide me and to teach me. He influenced me greatly. And the third person I would say would be Pastor Chris Johnson, because at the time in my life, I was seeking to do anything else but 
uh, be committed to church and faith, and yet the man poured into me so greatly. And I think about these spiritual leaders, it's their shoulders that I stand upon. You all have leaders like this in your life, whether they are of the past or even currently, and we're told here to follow their faith. Whose faith follow? Follow them. It began with them, or we're to follow them. In fact, that word follow is very interesting. It's mimeomai. That's where we get our English word mimic. We're to mimic their faith or imitate their faith. In fact, I probably in my early years of learning to teach, I probably more emulated, emulated outwardly actions of Pastor Chris Johnson. But we're to imitate their faith. We look to them and their example for inspiration. And Paul, he was a spiritual father. He was the one who spoke the word of God to many. He was a spiritual father of the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 15 to 16, he says this to his spiritual children. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. I'm your spiritual papa, he says, and you should imitate me. Later on, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Our spiritual fathers should still provide for us an example uh, to follow as we remember their faith. In fact, he goes on to say, considering the outcome of their conduct. See, their conduct has a part to play in it. Christian conduct is Mentioned. In fact, the, the mention of the, the outcome of their conduct and the call to remember them, it's likely that the author here is referencing maybe even leaders who have, who have passed away, leaders who are no longer around, especially when it's contrasted with leaders we're going to look at verse 17. But either way, their conduct, their outward behavior is a direct reflection of what? Their faith. They had real faith in Christ. So do you see why verses 1 through 6 have been so important? Why we received instruction about our conduct? How you all currently conduct your lives right now. You have to think about this. There will be people, perhaps in this room, who will look back at you as a spiritual father, as a spiritual mother, who will want to imitate your faith based on how you've conducted yourself. Is that not a humbling thing? That's incredible. Will there be people here who will do that? Will they be grandchildren, children, just younger people in the church? And it doesn't even have to be people who just introduced you to the faith. It could be people who you came together at the same time and entered the path at the same time, and they've been like a, just a, a spiritual um, stone rock for you as you've gone. I have such a one. His name is Billy Cox. Billy Cox was born in 1939, so he had some 32 years on me, and I met him when I went on that missions trip that changed my life. I've mentioned it several times. Went to the Waodani tribe Indians, the Alka Indians, and he went on this trip as well, and it was that trip that we both came together and resolved to follow Christ wholeheartedly, yet he had 30 years past me. I was in my early 30s, and we became spiritual brothers. He was my spiritual papa in a way in that time. At Christmas, dang it, <laughs> at Christmas he died. I couldn't go back to be part of the service, obviously. 
His wife passed away a few hours later. Mom, Pop, both passed away on Christmas. I got to go back to the States, as you know, in March and um, see their son, who I had a great relationship with, and um, son-in-law. And um, he said that day was a great day. It was a great day. And I will tell you, that man was a faithful man. He just loved his wife. He loved his family. He loved his kids. He was faithful at church. He was just a gentle, humble example. He's just a Joe Blow to anybody else. He didn't do anything magnificent, but he just remains for me such a shining example of a man of faith. We should take it seriously. Our conduct matters. For these Hebrew saints, remember he's writing to the Hebrews, he's referring, I think, to the apostles. Remember the apostles and those early disciples had an effect on this church. If you just skip back to chapter 2 really quickly here, chapter 2, he refers to them in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So it was confirmed to us, that's us, the church here, it was confirmed to us, he says, by those who heard him. Who, who, who were those people? The apostles and the early followers of Christ. Those are the ones that spoke the word of God to this Jewish community. And the author is reminding them to recall their faith. This is going to help us do something else. This is going to help us as believers practicing our faith also to remain in the grace of Christ, which is point two. Remain in the grace of Christ. It's a tragic thing when Christians who know the truth get drawn away into false doctrine. Things that draw them into other means of grace. They no longer look at the faith of the leaders of yesteryear. That's what's happening in the church today. Because they look at those people as, oh, that's so, so yesterday. Those were different times. Those were different circumstances. We've progressed past that way of thinking. The faith of those former leaders, it's no longer relevant. Well, the Bible says something different, doesn't it? In fact, it goes on to say this in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. If their faith hasn't changed, well, Jesus hasn't changed. Their faith doesn't change. Jesus Christ hasn't changed. Yes, outward circumstances in our life change, but Jesus doesn't. His message doesn't. The gospel doesn't. Paul had this concern with the Galatian church. Even in a short time, they had been convinced of another gospel than the one that he had first preached them. They had forgotten the faith of their uh, spiritual father. And in Galatians 1, 6-7, he says this to them, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in grace, uh, in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul was shocked because they, Jesus never changes. The gospel never changes. His word never changes. And they were called in the grace of Christ. But they were in danger of falling back under the law. Legalism. If even Paul were to go back to that church and teach a new teaching, a new gospel, he was not to be followed. He was not to be listened to. He thought so um, hard about that. He said in verse 8, be, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we preach to you, let him be accursed. <laughs> if I come back and preach something different, if an angel appears and preaches something different, he should be accursed, which is interesting because we have some religions, don't we, that started with an angel preaching a new message. Yet the Bible says, don't, don't listen to that. Reject it. 
See, the problem with the Galatians there is actually similar to the problem the Hebrews were having here. They started out in grace, but were in danger of falling under the law. What's he say? Jesus doesn't change. Look at verse 9. Do not be carried away about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who've been occupied with them. So here, he's warning them to not be carried away. Now, carried away refers to um, the, the force of wind or, or water that drags you along. What does he not want them to be carried away by? Various and strange doctrines. They're described as such, I don't think necessarily because they're, they're new, but because they're strange to the doctrine of grace. This is what he's talking about. Remain in grace. You were established in grace. That's what your heart was established in. Don't go to something else that's foreign to the message of the gospel. Now, likely what's he talking about here is traditional Jewish beliefs because he references foods, doesn't he? Foods. The heart can only be established by grace. And, and when we say heart, we know we mean the entire being. It's not, it's not this organ that pumps blood. Our whole self, our whole being can only be established or confirmed in the faith by grace. That's the New Testament message of the gospel. And that's the better covenant that has been the message of the whole book. It's a better covenant that comes through a better sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He is a better high priest. He resurrected. He ascended. He, he intercedes for us. And this new covenant is built on better promises. The Old Testament message was quite different. It was all about rules and regulations, what to eat, what not to eat, what to wear, what not to wear, all those things. And food was a huge part of it. All their lives, they've been taught by God that what you ate or what you didn't eat was extremely important to God. And so they were constantly occupied with dietary regulations. And here we're told that it did not profit those who had been occupied with them. That's the Jews. It did, it did not profit them. It was a temporary um, thing. It was not a permanent thing. And Paul really had to explain the same thing to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 8, 8, he says, But food does not commend us to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. It's not about food, in other words. It has nothing to do with your faith. We're saved by grace through faith, and even faith is not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. So don't go back to those temporary regulations. They were never intended to be permanent. That's the danger the Jews are under. Now, these next five verses that we're going into are among the most difficult in all the book of Hebrews. If you to read commentaries on these, most of the commentaries will disagree. There's all kinds of interpretations and applications of these verses because they're very difficult. And I've read them all through this week, and I'm going to share with you where I've landed with it but I'm not going to be dogmatic. I think we have to keep the theme that we're already in here, the theme of food, to understand this. And I think when we do, I think it becomes clear that the next few verses, they're merely supportive of his argument. The Jews thought that foods commended them to God. It was about the food, okay? The only foods that commend us to God today, stick with me here, okay, is what we eat and drink at the Lord's table not the actual food. What's the Lord's table represent? Christ Jesus himself. 
his sacrifice. That's the only food that commends us to God. Jesus is our spiritual nourishment. Jesus is the only sacrifice which can sanctify us, make us holy. Now, look at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Let's start with this altar. Some think the altar refers to a literal altar. Our Christian altar, say, our, our table, our Lord's table, where we put the communion elements. Some think the altar refers to some, uh, some heavenly altar. We do see an altar in Revelation there. Some think it's there. I think, as we're looking at the Old Te Testament regulations and food and the mention of the tabernacle is here, that it refers to uh, that place where the sacrifice was made. Think back to all that we studied, and we put pictures of the tabernacle up there, didn't we? And there's an altar outside where they sacrificed the animals. There's an altar inside where they offered the blood, inside the tent, all right? That Old Testament altar where the Le Levitical priests offered sacrifices points to the better altar, where Christ was sacrificed for atoning for our sins. And those who want to remain in the past, those who want to remain to the Old Testament tabernacle, he says here, have no right to eat from the altar of Christ. They're still standing at the old altar, the old sacrificial system. Let me break it down a little bit more. We're not talking about literal eating. Now, it is true when the Levites sacrificed an animal, part of their... Um, Support, you could say, was to eat the meat. They could eat the leftover meat from the sacrifices. Here, we're talking about something different. We're talking about not literal eating, although he's referencing the eating that would take place from these Levites. Jesus said a very similar thing. Let me give you an, uh, a verse here in John 6, 53. When he was walking on this earth in his ministry, he said these words. And when he said these words, many people thought it too hard to swallow. And so they left him. But he said this, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, <laughs> you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And when some disciples heard that, they said, that's just freaky, and they left him. Okay, they just could not understand what he was talking about. Now, Jesus was not talking about literally eating and drinking him. He was asking them to accept his sacrifice. He's talking to Jews who, who were obsessed with the eating and drinking of the Old Testament things. He says, listen, if you want to eat and drink something, eat and drink me. It's not about that. I'm the better sacrifice. Does that make sense? That's what he's doing. Now, the following verses, what it's doing, it's considering these two sacrifices the, of these two different altars, the altar in the tabernacle and the altar of Christ. Look at verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. This is the Old Testament, okay? This is a reference to the altar in the tabernacle. And as it mentions the high priest then, it likely refers to Levitic Leviticus 16, which is the Day of Atonement passage. We looked at that in detail, but I'll just look at verse 15 with you. It'll be on the screen here. And this is what it says. This is the high priest, by the way. He shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull. So remember, he goes in with the blood of the bull first for himself and the priests, and then he went in with the blood of a goat for the people. 
and he will sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. And what that did is it atoned for the sins of the people. But it was one day of the year. And on that day, when the high priest went in, he didn't eat the meat. There was no eating of the meat. He actually went and just brought in the blood from the animal and atoned for the sin. Once that sacrifice was made, they actually did something different with the meat. Verse 27, the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. So what they did is that they didn't keep any of that animal to eat. That entire carcass, that entire animal was taken outside the Jewish camp, and they burned it. Now, those sacrifices were a type. Now, we've been looking a lot at types. They were a type of the sacrifice of Christ that would come. That's the Old Testament. Now, let's look at the comparison made with the sacrifice of Christ in verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So one is outside the camp, and here we have outside the gate. The animals burned outside the camp of the Israelites. Jesus suffered outside the gate. What's the gate? Well, the gate is a reference to the gates of Jerusalem, outside the city. John's gospel actually gives us this very important detail, that Jesus, he wasn't crucified inside Jerusalem. He was crucified outside Jerusalem. Look at John 19. And he, bearing his cross, went out, where did he go out of? Out of the city, to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Not in the city, it was near the city. That's why he had to carry his cross to this place outside the city. And so Jesus' sacrifice was a fulfillment of the Old Testament Levitical system. And those who remain committed to that old Levitical system would be excluded from the atoning benefit of Christ's death. They're attached to the old ways. So in other words, looking back at verse 10, they have no right to eat. They have no right to eat from the altar or from the sacrifice of Christ because they're, they're connected to the old. Now, there's a major difference between these two sacrifices, one outside the camp, one outside the gate. It's not that. Um, it's mentioned here that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, which means set them apart, make them holy. You and I are placed in this position, in this realm of holy because of the blood of Jesus. And that echoes a lot of the teaching we've been looking at in Hebrews, particularly Hebrews 10, 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Sanctification happened how? Through his body. And later on, verse 29, we're told that those who counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, they actually insult the spirit of grace. Why? How do you insult the spirit of grace? Because they don't recognize that it's by God's grace. They're thinking the Old Testament way. Jesus's blood, Jesus's blood sanctifies us. It sanctifies people. The blood of bulls and goats cannot do that. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says this, that the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now we've looked at all those verses before, but here's the difference. The blood of animals 
sanctified the people. It did do that, but only outwardly and only for a time. They were back again next year to do the same thing. It did nothing inwardly. Jesus's blood, however, cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It does something inside of us. There's no more shame. There's no more guilt. All of that's gone. Amazing. So Jesus' sacrifice is the only sacrifice that brings grace. And he's telling us, you need to remain in that. Don't be carried away by various and strange things that come your way, church. Stick with what you know. Jesus is the only way that we find grace. Some new fandangle thing comes along and someone comes along and says, oh, no, no, I think grace comes this way. Jesus really meant this, blah, 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 all the things you hear. We're told here, no, 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 church, remain in grace. One of the greatest problems of the church today is a lack of discernment. We're just easily drawn away into new and various and strange doctrines. This whole section, I believe, is about that. Just remain in grace. Now, If Jesus is the only way we find grace, if it's in him only, then it's only in him that we're going to reach the end of our journey. We're going to him. That's what we're doing, right? We're going to him. That's been the theme the the whole time. And so point three is this, then reach for eternal things. We're not of this world. We're to, to reach beyond that. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. So Jesus suffered outside the gate, or the camp, as it's alluded to. And he's, what they're saying is here, then we should go where he is. Where is Jesus today? Where's outside the camp? He's at the right hand of the Father. That's where he is. We should be looking to those things. We're told to go forth. Well, can we physically go forth there? No, but we can reach for those things. That's what we're to be doing. We're to be like laying up treasures in heaven, not on earth. The Jewish believers were afraid to leave the comfort and security of of Judaism, weren't weren't they? That's the problem there. For us, we need to leave the comfort and security of this world. We find comfort and security in so much rubbish, so much that cannot provide any eternal value or security at all. We're told to reject those things. Yes, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. We're to not love the world. We're told to go outside the camp, reject the world system, progress forward in our sanctification. It's his blood that sanctifies us, and we have to continually go to him. You guys know this passage, Colossians 3. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. And when we do that, when we actually live that way, you know what's going to be the natural response of the world? Shame, reproach. You're going to bear the reproach that Christ bore. To go outside the camp or go outside the world is to bear the reproach of Christ. Think back to what Hebrews said about Moses. Moses born Jewish, but taken into nobility. And he, he, he rejected the nobility and power of Egypt. For what? In Hebrews eleven twenty five, it tells us, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach, the shame of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. 
we're looking to the reward. In fact, he says, we don't have a continuing city. We seek the one to come. That's where Christ is. We can bear Christ's reproach because this earthly city will not continue. You have no continuing city here. Cardiff is not your permanent home. (laughs) The UK is not your permanent home. The state's not our permanent home. Nothing here will continue. There's no continuing city here. We seek the one to come. And since we have no continuing city, since we have no camp, we must go outside the camp. You get the idea here? The camp to Jesus. Like Abraham. Abraham, in Hebrews 11.10, it said this, For the city, he was waiting for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's the city we're looking for. And it's a heavenly city. It's an eternal city. So church, here's some focused things for you. Remember the faith of your leaders. Those who taught the word of God to you faithfully. Remain in the grace of Christ. It doesn't come to us through any other means. Don't don't sway from that. Stay there. And in our Christian practice, we reach for eternal things. That's what we're doing, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. We're going to a heavenly city. And since we live for that city, we have a very simple spiritual duty here, and I love this one. Render to God sacrifices of praise. Praise. Give him praise. Verse 15, therefore by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. We, <laughs> we don't need to offer sacrifices for atonement. I know I've said this before, but no one's ever come t- to me with a goat. <laughs> and I'm so grateful. I need to sacrifice this. We, we have one sacrifice, the sacrifice of praise. God just wants our praise. Think about this. This is incredible. The only sacrifice we're commanded to give, praise to God. Now, you know what's being mentioned here or really referred to is Psalm 50. Twice, I think, it's being referred to. Psalm 50 is the one that basically says, I own it all, right? God says, every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. All the earth is mine in all its fullness. Everything is mine. But then in Psalm 50, we have these two, two phrases in Psalm 50, verses 14 and 23. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Whoever offers pra- praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. So since God owns everything, he's not really particularly impressed with the sacrifice of animals, okay? I, I own it all. I own it all. They belong to him. But what he really wants? Praise. Offer me praise. In fact, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. You know, that shouldn't be hard for us to do. Why sometimes do we find it hard? We have so much to praise God for. Unbelievable. Do you remember what we talked about when we talked about money? Like, you guys are filthy rich. You're all loaded. You're, you're, you're so wealthy. You're rich in Christ. And that's, that's the, t- you have all these things. Forgiveness of sins. But not just forgiveness of sins, but there's no more guilt. There's no more shame. We have freedom in Christ. We have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. We have the promise of eternal life. And he says, and you're just rich, my children. We, we should have no problem to pray. Praise him. We don't deserve any of it. And God just says, you just give me praise. You just worship. Just worship me. But he does add a few other things. But a few other things I like as well. Verse 16, look at this. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. 
He's also pleased that we are giving people, that we're sharing people. We just heard a great testimony, didn't we, from James? That, that, that's pleasing to God, that we would share what we have. You're going through a tragedy? Let us share you. We'll give you food. Let's, let's give to people in need. What a great example of praise to our Father, of a sacrifice that's pleasing to him. We're created for those things. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're his workmanship. That's incredible. Doing good is a result and response to salvation. It doesn't earn it. It's because we have salvation, because the Holy Spirit's in us, we can think differently. We can be giving people and share with others. It's a sacrifice that pleases God. Philippians 4.18 says, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. This church gave to Paul, and he says, you know what that was when you share with me, when you gave to me? That was a sweet-smelling aroma to God. That was an acceptable sacrifice. You know what? That, that pleased God. Praise, giving, sharing, all those things are acceptable sacrifices to God. So we have one more. The last one, the fifth one here, is to respond to your leaders with obedience. Now, we sort of bookended here. We began with leaders, didn't we? Remember your leaders, the ones who shared their faith, the ones who spoke the word of God to you. Here, we're told to respond to your leaders with obedience. Look at verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Now, you know I've been waiting a year and a half to get to this verse. This is, this is the one we've been waiting for. I just want to take my time with it. Just, just, we're going to begin a 10-week study. We've already looked. I'm just joking, obviously. We already looked at this word rule. It means to lead, okay? It means to lead. And where before the reference was to previous spiritual leaders, this does refer to your current ones, okay? The command to obey your spiritual leaders is one that is repeated elsewhere in Scripture. This is not a one-off. We'll look at a few as we go, but let me give you one in 1 Corinthians 16, 15 to 16. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Those leaders in ministry, he says, you need to submit to them. Now, I should begin by pointing out that you're not called to obey uh, and submit because of any authority your leaders possess. And I want you to understand that. I have zero authority. I have no authority. I, I, my, my, my title, pastor, does not give me authority. My background doesn't give me authority. My upbringing does not give me authority. My education or ministry experience does not give me authority. It is none of those things. The only authority we have is the authority of God's word. It is God's word that we bring to bear in the lives of his people. I have no authority in and of myself. I'm one of you. Now, I should also point out that this submitting to leaders and obeying them is not a universal rule. 
There are some that would just love to go to this and go, look at that, you're just supposed to obey. It only applies to leaders who live in accordance with the theological truths that have been articulated in this whole book, okay? With the truth of the gospel. And people should not submit to leaders who deviate from the truth of God's word and the gospel. In addition, your leaders should be living up to the biblical qualifications regarding leaders. And I want to take you to 1 Timothy 3, if you'll, you'll bear with me. Just take a short left-hand turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, one of the places that we find the qualifications for leaders. And you are familiar with these because we just looked at these not too long ago when you um, uh, voted in to, to have Kofi join the church council as an elder of the church. And Kofi, I will tell you, spent some weeks going through these things, heartfelt self-evaluation. And as you read these things, they're, they're just simply humbling. 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop or an overseer, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless or above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So those are, that's quite a list, isn't it? And if, if leaders meet these biblical qualifications, then the church is called to obey and be submissive to their leaders. But the reasons for it are given here, and I want to go through the reasons. The first is this. Leaders, watch out for your souls. Wow. Leaders, watch out for your souls. To watch out for a soul is the primary role of an overseer. When Paul met up with the elders of Ephesus, the Ephesian elders, he reminded them of this in Acts 20, 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Watching out for your souls, he says, is the job of a shepherd. We, we, we watch that souls don't get led astray, that they, they, they don't deviate from the authority of God's word. It is to direct wayward sheep back to the truth. That's the picture here. And so we don't rule over the church, directing people to fulfill our every wish. That is not a picture here. In fact, Peter gives us an excellent example of a true shepherd. In 1 Peter 5, verses 2 to 3, he says, Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. Okay, not, not lording, but serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not 
or nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, clearly, the role is not one of a lord. We don't serve ourselves. We're serving as overseers, and God has entrusted the care of the church to leaders, to overseers. And by your trust in your leaders, you trust us then to preside over the church and determine the direction of the church, to faithfully feed you the word of God, and to use that authority of God's word to reprove and rebuke and exhort. That's what we're called to do. Titus 2.15 says that, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. So just as leaders are to lead and were to serve um, willingly and humbly in love, so the church is to submit to their leadership willingly and humbly in love. That's the, the relationship that is to exist there. And you see some of that happening with Paul and his churches, don't you? At 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13, he says, We urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. If you have this high and love and esteem for them because of their work, you must remember what their work is. It's watching out for your souls. The true role of a shepherd is caring for souls. We just don't want to see any soul left behind. We all want to get there together. That is the goal. And when people fight against that, when there's unruly people, self-willed people, stubborn, rebellious people, there isn't peace among yourselves. He says, but if you'll just esteem them highly in love because of the work that they're doing, if they're truly doing that work, there should be peace among yourselves. And so leaders are watching out for your souls. That's the first reason he says you should submit to them. You should obey. They're doing something that only God does, which is incredible. God is the one that watches out for your souls. So we sort of have this, this, this responsibility and authority given uh, from God to, to do that with his word. The second reason is given here as well, though. Leaders are accountable to God. It says, as those who must give account. We're going to answer to him how, as to how we, we led. That's a sobering thought as well. We serve as shepherds, but we are only under shepherds. We are accountable to the chief shepherd. And in 1 Peter 5, 4, we're told this, and when the chief shepherd appears, okay, so the boss is coming, the head of the church, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. I hope that is true of the leaders of the church today, that they actually have done a job deserving of a crown of glory. But the truth is, many will not. In fact, I will tell you that many leaders of churches today, Jesus will say these words, Depart from me, I never knew you. That is the truth of many churches today. There are people at pulpits that are leading self-willed for their own um, desires, which usually is money, <laughs> and to have power. And they're going to answer to the chief shepherd. The thing that keeps me sober is thinking that. I'm going to answer to Christ. There's another reason the church should obey and be submissive, and we're told this, because leaders will receive joy. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. 
Church, you have a responsibility here. It's the responsibility of the church to help their leaders lead with joy and satisfaction. But self-willed, stubborn people in churches often rob their leaders of joy. I've always referred to them as joy suckers. I'm sorry, that's just the words I've used. Joy and fulfillment in ministry is intended by God. That's why he says, let them do so with joy. It should be joyous, but I will tell you, sadly, ministry is often difficult. We're all sinners. We're all fallen sinners, and there's selfish, stubborn people sometimes who just are unwilling to submit to the authority of God's word. And again, the authority comes from the expectation that God has on leaders to watch out for their souls. That should, that should be where it's used. And it's the job of the congregation to allow leaders to do so willingly and humbly submitting to that. And when the sheep are stubborn and self-willed and rebellious, and I've known many sheep in my ministry time that have been that way, they, they cause their leaders grief. We're told here, uh, not with grief. And that word grief is stenazo, and it means to groan or have an inward sort of unexpressed um, feeling of sorrow. It's an inward groan. And in my experience, these things happen right on the heels of what I would say are spiritual victories or spiritual highs. That's exactly when those things happen. We had a great couple of weeks, didn't we? Like, look at the focus we've had over the, com- the last you know, several weeks. We've had this marriage conference, and it went into these very important weeks where we were talking about very important things going on. And I will tell you, there was a week right in the middle of that that we both felt, my wife and I, great spiritual attack. And part of that was due to some joy sucking. And I have learned to expect it, to come off of those things like, that was just such an amazing thing. And then here come the joy suckers. There's no one in this room. Listen, Jeremiah had an entire ministry with rebellious, stubborn, self-willed people. He never knew the joy from the people in ministry. The only joy he could have was the joy of serving the Lord, but he never got it from his people. His entire lifetime was spent in tears over his people. I just can't imagine that. But I will tell you, I've experienced a lot of these in my years, and I can remember every single person who ultimately rejected the authority of God's word. Every single time, it was um, wanting to fulfill their own sinful desires, looking for some loophole, looking for some way in scripture to justify their sinful decision and ignoring God's word being shown to them and pleading with them saying, this is only going to lead to more pain. Under the delusion that they're gonna have more joy, Sadly, I can remember every single one. Luckily, it's not that many times. There's plenty of joy in being an overseer. I have plenty of joy of being a leader in this church. Paul expressed that kind of joy to the Philippians. And in chapter one of Philippians, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always and every prayer of mine making requests for you all with, with joy. Do you know, when we read the Philippians, we don't come across doctrinal error. He's not correcting sinful behavior in that book. So you see the source of the joy? They weren't going astray from the word. 
And so for him, when he thought about that church, every thought was, I just remember you with joy. Yeah, it ends with one little squabble between those two ladies, Eodia and Syntyche. Remember, he's like, you two need to get that straight. But, but he, doesn't have, he doesn't have a doctrinal thing. By the way, they would have read that letter out loud, right? So, and here's a letter from Paul, Eodia and Syntyche. <laughs> that, do that, you're like, but that was a relational thing. Doctrinally, they were sound, and so he had much joy from the Philippians. The Thessalonians, we've been going through that, men. They brought him great joy. First Thessalonians 2, 19 to 20, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. I can honestly say that this church brings me much joy. But the joy stealers are selfish people. They're not aware of the joy of their leaders. They're not thinking about that. They could care less about that. So this motivation to be like, oh, remember the joy of leaders doesn't really work for them, which is why we have one more reason. One more reason is given to us. It's actually a negative result upon the church member. He says this, for that would be unprofitable for you. In other words, the church should submit for their own joy. It's the, the church is going to receive joy. Causing grief for leaders actually brings grief to the individual. As I mentioned before, every single one of those instances I can remember, they think joy is promised for them and happiness because of the decisions they're, made, they're making. And actually, their lives are filled with grief. And it harms them, and often it harms the whole church as well. When individuals reject God's authority, they displease God, they steal their leader's joy, and they lose their own joy as well. Just incredible. Paul's joy was related to the joy of the church, and that's why he had so much joy from the Philippians. In chapter 2 of Philippians, I'll just close with these verses. He says this, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. I can have joy over that, and you can have joy of that. The joy of one brings joy to the other. What an amazing instructions here. This concludes the, the author's directions to the church. Just these, these five things. To have a healthy, vibrant congregation of believers, he says, remember the faith of your leaders. Remember those who brought you to faith. Remain in the grace of Christ. There's no other means of grace. Reach for the eternal things. Forget the things of the world. Render to God a sacrifice of praise and respond to your leaders with obedience and submission. No more instruction will come from Hebrews. Next week, we're going to finish with the benediction and the final exhortation. But let's keep these instruction, instructions in the forefront of our minds. Let's not forget them. These are so important. They're going to keep us on the right path as a church, a church of which Christ Jesus is the head. Amen? Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you, Lord, that you're a faithful God. We thank you for faithfully guiding us through even some difficult things here to understand. We thank you for your truth to us. We thank you for just an amazing season in the book of Hebrews. Lord, we will see uh, how it concludes next week, Lord, and we pray for your guidance as we, um, Lord, um, seek to study another book of your word. We pray that you'd guide us to the right place. We pray for the summer ministry as well. We know we'll be going into a series of the foundations of the faith. We pray your blessing upon that as we prepare that. Lord, we love you. We thank you that your word is living and powerful. 
and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord, may our thoughts, may our, the intents of our hearts, Lord, be laid open bare before you. May we humbly submit to all that we have received from you, particularly even in this last chapter, we've received so much instruction on how to conduct ourselves as Christians, because our witness can have such a great impact, not just on the world at large, but even in the people in this room. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please, and we'll sing a closing song. Amen.